Our next guest is an actor, comedian and screenwriter best known for Spaced and Shaun of the Dead and Paul and his bromance with a man he calls Peggy. You may not know that early in his now illustrious career, he, and, and this is according to Wikipedia, we're going to have to talk about it though, you may not know that in his early career he played an armed robber who shot dead Mrs. Overall in Acorn Antiques. Is that true? Nod, if it is true. It is true, it is true. Um, Julie Walters and I have forgiven him and he's here tonight um, to talk about not that, but everything that led up to that, his off-screen beginnings. Truths, Half-Truths and Little White Lies is about as far from the usual celebrity memoir as you can get. For a start, he wrote it. Please welcome Nick Frost. So shall I just dive straight in? Yeah, I think I'll okay. be reading. Well, I've got four, like, bits uh, in... You know, they just happen, so have a listen. Um, I think the beginnings of my current life as an actor started here. Uh, let me just explain. I used to phone in... Not phone in, but as I was a kid, I used to pretend to be ill a lot, and I was really good at it. Um, getting off school by pretending to be dangerously ill takes skill, courage and commitment. I had a lovely little technique where I'd take the thermometer Mum was using to check my temperature and rub it hard with my tongue and blow hot air on the mercury-filled bulb. Anything to get it over the golden number, 101 degrees F. The sickness gig was very to and fro with Mum. She'd threatened to call the doctor out. I'd say I was fine. It was just a bug, etc. She always came round to my way of thinking. I was good, often interrupting a conversation with a round of coughing and dry heaves. I'd lay on the sofa pretending to be dangerously ill. It was a biffer-worthy performance, utterly compelling. My enjoyment of Jamie's Magic Talks, however, was one day rudely interrupted by a brass knock on the front door. As a fake sickman, there are times when you need to deeply immerse yourself in a role. Factors need to be considered. What do I have? What's the timeline for said viral infection? How sick am I? Last time we spoke, how sick was I? Have I become dramatically worse? Am I feeling slightly better? What's the longest possible time I can eat this out for? Getting sick on a Wednesday means I will not be back at school till the following Monday. So come Friday at 4pm, I'd be feeling much better. <laughs> the answers to the above questions give you the level of illness you need to pitch. It's pretty simple, really. Stay in character and commit. This was a Wednesday, and as such, I was in the grip of a nasty Asian ape flu that had been going around. In response to the door knocking, I'd pulled my blankets up and was moaning, as if deep in a Bronte-esque, soaked by rain on a dark, heath-fever-induced daymare. I moaned. Brilliant. Mum, door! I could hear my mum talking to someone. I strained to hear snippets of a conversation. Thanks for coming. He's in here. I shut my eyes and moaned, shivering. So cold, so sick. <laughs> the only way a human would be as sick as I was pretending to be is, was, uh, was if he or she had eaten a rotten monkey brain omelette in the central market of Liberia. West Africa. I hadn't. My arms contorted in spasm and I woke with a start. Too much, too big. Hammy performance. I opened my eyes to see our GP standing there. Tit bags. She actually called the doctor. I'm ruined. The doctor, a big man, towers over me. Tough it out, commit. You're one of the best poorly child actors in Western Europe. <laughs> Has this child been to Liberia in the last 10 days, he asks. No. Maybe I'd pitch my performance just right after all. The doctor takes my blood pressure and temperature. He listens to my chest with his stethoscope. I can see my smug mum behind him, smiling. She'd called my bluff. What a dick. 
The doctor's brow furrows. I drop out of character for a second, and he sees this. He tuts and shakes his head. Mum and I lock eyes briefly. I pretend to get suddenly very cold. The doctor slowly pulls his bookish half-moon glasses from his noble Hippocratic face. He didn't wear glasses. He fixes my mum with a hard stare and barks out these words, Mrs Frost, would you be so kind as to call an ambulance, please? I suddenly feel a lot better. <laughs> Is this part of my mum's bluff? No, she's rooted and white as a sheet. This is actually happening. I'm actually sick. The doctor has diagnosed a potentially dangerous heart condition. My dream of being a deep-sea diver now lies in tatters. I was in hospital for three weeks and I never pretended to be sick again. <laughs> uh, I think in these last three tiny bits, I'm going to drop the C-bomb twice, so be prepared. Uh, this is about me as a waiter. Uh, I was a waiter for five years in a, a stinky Mexican hellhole called Chiquitos. Uh, but I kind of weirdly loved it, so here we go. Late one Saturday night, I receive a table. I was very not happy. I was six minutes from closing, and they get sat in my section. I must have really pissed Melissa off that night. Melissa was the hostess, and if you upset her, she made sure that she would put a table on, on, in your section at the very last minute, which was very annoying. Um, Fifteen rowdy drunks who are loud and aggressive. Lots of swearing, lots of nipping back and forth to the toilets. Lots of sniffing. When it comes to the food, some order one starter between two people as a main course. <laughs> this was not going to be a good table, tip-wise. On top of everything else, these folks are finger-clickers. I am tired and pissed off. I take all their shit knowing there's going to be little or no reward at the end of it. No matter, suck it up, do your job, get rid of them, and go to the Pink Rupee, which was at a restaurant, a lovely Indian restaurant. Um, after a while, I get clicked at by a belligerent old fucker wearing stained tracksuit bottoms and a dress shirt. Not a good look. <laughs> Oi! Oh, fuck, here we go. Oi! He repeats it again, this time louder. His angry relatives have taken some kind of offence that I didn't react immediately to what I imagine is their elderly father and they are now giving me the kind of death stare that makes my feet hurt. Yes, sir, what can I get you? His voice stumbles and cracks. His eyes close, then flicker. He seems way gone. Get me a fucking beer. Whoa. This man is far too pissed. He's so pissed it's actually illegal. No, it's morally wrong for me to serve him any more alcohol. As a waiter, I have a responsibility to this poor man and his family while he's dining here at Chiquito Mexican Bar and Restaurant, PLC. <laughs> I also think it's a great way for me to get them out as quickly as possible. At first, my voice shakes. I know the reaction to this will be bad. British people tend to react really badly when you accuse them of being drunk. <laughs> Even if they're so pissed, they're shitting in a hat. <laughs> I'm afraid I can't serve you any more alcohol, sir. I think you've had far too much already. His beefy son looks up at me with half a chimichanga hanging out of his mouth. His eyes fix wide with a disbelief his brows never knew existed. The women at the table tense up. It'll go like this. First the kids will get chippy and call me a cunt. Then the big-armed women wade in and attempt to smother me with their bingo wings. Lastly, the men punch you in the temple with a clipper lighter until a fluid that smells like freshly cut hay dribbles out of your ears. All this for the chance of a one-pound tip. I grow more confident. Legally, I have the law on my side. Rumbles around the restaurant at my denial of alcohol means my GM has come out to watch, to observe from a distance this family killing me. 
I'm afraid I can't serve you any more alcohol. You're far too drunk. Silence. The stick-thin dad with the stained tracksuit bottoms, drunk and so angry, struggles to get to his feet. He stammers, fuming. I'm not pissed, you cheeky prick. I've just had a fucking stroke. <laughs> that is a true story. Um, OK, this third story... Um, is about my time living in Camden Town and going to try and find really shit drugs under the bridge there. Um, here we go. <laughs> under the bridge by the lock was the place to go if you wanted to buy the shittest drugs in the world. The dealers were men used, used to cutting at thin tourists, looking for something to blaze up through the window of their two-star Paddington flophouse. I'd been burned a couple of times, but sometimes after a few drinks on a Sunday, it was hard to resist the temptation. One afternoon, I pushed past a group of Polish kids who were waiting to be threatened. A frightened young Swede with deep cuts to both arms bumbled back up the towpath, crying. In the canal, there were two corpse-shaped things floating just beneath the surface. It seemed quiet for a Sunday. No matter, I fancied a smoke, and this time I had a surefire way to not get burned. As I neared the stick-thin one-eyed raster, I took an approach I was hoping they'd never seen or heard before. Honesty. I was going to be honest. I was just going to lay it all out there. All right? Where you want? So far, so good. <laughs> uh, I need some bush. I'd heard some white Trustafarians in an earlier exchange say, me need some bushmon. And they both got cut, and rightly so. <laughs> the exchange progressed. I see one eye reach into his jacket to fish out Sir Stabs a lot. It's at this point I spring my trap. Wait! He tenses up. I continue. Can I be honest with you? A, a fog of confusion descends upon the trader. His hands tremble as he works out what's happening. I think he thinks I'm old Bill. I'm not. I continue. I'm from London, born and bred, as I think are you. Fucking right, blood, Islington. His patois drops just for a second. This is good. For the moment, my body remains watertight. Can I be honest with you? I repeat. Yeah, go on, be quick, but I've got Spanish kids to slash at. <laughs> I, I understand. I live in Kentish Town. I'm here every week, and I've been burned in the past by people that trade under this bridge. I'm a bit pissed, and I'm desperate for a smoke. I don't want to spend £40 buying something that would be better suited going into my cannelloni. I hear someone drop a knife behind me in utter disbelief. There's a long pause. He's debating how to open me up. A tummy jab, maybe. Bleeds a lot, takes an age to die. A bit shallow enough, I guess. How about a facial slash? Now, a facial slash is good because it sends out a very visible warning. Maybe a few short, sharp stabs to my bum and upper thighs. I'll shit standing up in the shower for the next eight weeks, but I'll live. Who knows? Let's find out. He stares at me. Yeah, all right, fair enough. Follow me. I follow one eye back to his flat on the outskirts of Camden. I'm slightly nervous, but we've begun to chat, and I, like a trusting fool, go with him. The atmosphere lightens somewhat when he lifts his patch to reveal another fully working, bright, clear, chestnut brown eye. <laughs> I shouldn't have, but in the atmosphere of honesty, he invites me inside and I go. We share a glass of semi-skim milk. <laughs> by and by, he pulls out a carrier bag of stinky shit. I hand over dollar bills, he hands over the fat buds, and the deal is done. Simple as that. We shake hands and drift back into town together. As he nears the bridge, he explains, pulling down his patch, he has to put his game face on. 
I've got to get back to work. It was nice to meet you, though. <laughs> and you, mate. I go to shake hands, he pulls away. I can't, the guys are watching. <laughs> I understand. How do you want to play this? He thinks for a minute. Um, I'll shout loudly, calling you a bumberclart. I'll go through my pockets looking for my carnival knife, and you flee into the crowded marketplace. Hey, it sounds like a good plan. Thanks, Ian. He winks, I run. Bumberclart! <laughs> Sometimes honesty is the best policy. <laughs> Uh, okay, the last, last, little, last little bit um, was a time, like, you know, 15 years ago, and I was invited, I say in the first bit, I was invited to Adam and Joe's Christmas party, and I was thrilled to be invited to this thing. And then on the way, on the way home, I get beaten up by five men, which was awful. Um, so this is about that. It's a comedy, it's a comedy. <laughs> During this period, I was invited by Adam and Joe to a fancy party. I was chuffed and began to feel included in the scene. I'm not sure what the occasion was, but my party instinct tells me either rap or Christmas. No, no matter. For some reason, I'd spent two months regrowing a big Zapata moustache after shaving my spaced one off when we rapped. I give this moustache to Edgar Wright in a matchbox as a gift. He still has it, although now it looks like a red marble. Gross. I leave the party around two o'clock to get home in time to watch the first Evander Holyfield Lennox Lewis fight. I was pretty pissed up as I walked around Farringdon looking for a taxi. I was outside a BP garage on the outskirts of an estate when I turned to see five youths bowling up towards me. Fuck. As a man, I had always been terrified of this happening. One on one, fine, fair game, but this was different. This was the thing where, despite your best intentions of a noble fight back, through sheer weight of their numbers, you would be completely emasculated and there was nothing you could do to prevent this, nothing. Many times, as a younger man, I'd mulled over the eternal question, stabbed or slashed? For the record, <laughs> it's like the other thing, I'm just always thinking about being stabbed. Uh, for the record, I'm all for the stabbing, and here's my logic. For someone who was terrified of having stitches, the thought of having two or three hundred in a gaping chest or backslash is unthinkable. But the thought of being stuck and having an operation under a general anaesthetic was complete bliss to me. <laughs> How did we get here? Oh, yeah, the guy surrounded me, right. The great stab or slash question now flickered through my processor. It was rudely interrupted by this. What are you fucking looking at, you fat cunt? As an opening remark, it leaves little or no confusion as to what their intention is. As direct approaches go, it's actually quite refreshing. I'm fucked. I quickly formulate a strategy. This buys me the precious seconds I need to figure out a Jack Reacher-style plan to get me out of the pickle that's come to be known as the incident of the wrong moustache in Dangertown. Here's what happens next. With a powerful, fast-paced right hook, I knock the main cunt out. Sparko, gone. Jaw pops, eyes roll. He does the thing boxers do where their arms spasm in the sky, flapping at white ravens unseen. He might be dead, gutted. <laughs> this completely throws a fox into the hen house. This has never happened to them before. Their random victims never fight back. It's not the done thing. The toilet muffin behind me starts to beep, starts to panic. Whatevs. I spin, laying a pointy elbow into his soft human temple. He vomits and groans like a grieving widow. He collapses into a puddle of his own council estate honk. Just three left. A handsome, long-limbed simpleton swings one of his rangy paws at me. Christ, he's slow. I step left and one step forward, quickly rotating. I flick out a shattering back fist. Poor lad. He'd have to undergo four hours of painful NHS dental surgery. I pull one of his oversized incisors from the back of my hand. I toss it to the floor and giggle like a wet geisha. 
I close my eyes and let the man chemicals flood through my brain. I come. <laughs> the last two combatants are completely horrified. I get the feeling they've never seen a man involuntarily ejaculate during a, during a fatty bash before. I see them think twice. Seeing me on all fours tasting my own seed, they decide to fuck off. <laughs> I survey the pile of human shit around me. <laughs> no, it's not finished. <laughs> I survey the pile of human shit around me and pulling Willie out, I take a post-fight piss on them. I notice one of them has a Cadbury's double-decker in his pocket. I reach in, open it and feed. Christ, that tastes good. A black cab pulls up and I jump in. Where to, Governor? Highgate, please, driver. Good night. Yeah, excellent. <laughs> Job done. My fantasy ends and to my horror, I find I'm still surrounded. Skins, geezers, faceless, mirthless, dead behind the eyes. I mutter a cowardly retort to his original question. Nothing, mate. My eyes cast down at the pavement. Scene. <laughs> Thanks. You know, it was, only, it was only when you got to the double-decker when I was reading it the first time that I thought, no. <laughs> that, that's, that, up until then, I had believed every single part. OK, well, that's good, that's good. It's true, it's true. Um, so you say in, in, in the introduction to this book that you kind of question yourself about why, why are you doing it now? Because yeah. the book, the story that you tell takes us kind of up until the point where you start working as an actor and, and, and where you achieve some kind of celeb the early bits of celebrity. Yeah. Um, so why write a book that is so revealing about yourself now? Because you don't shy away from it. You really go there. Why, why do that now? Um, I... I don't, I, I mean, personally, I don't think there was any other way that I wanted to do it. You know, I, if I was going to write a, a memoir, I was going to write the story of, of what my life was up until the point where it ends. And I didn't, you know, I think I've said before a few times on things recently, hearing uh, a well-paid celebrity moaning because he has private jet lag and his feet hurt because a thousand pound pair of shoes uh, hurt his feet. It makes me want to punch someone in the eye. Um, and I don't think it's very relatable to people and it's very exclusive and I thought well you know I don't have, I mean if I don't have any parents anymore and I think there's things that I don't know about them that I will now never know as a result of of, of them you know passing away and I didn't want my own four-year-old son you know having I mean this isn't he couldn't read this and think well that there's that that's what fatherhood is you know but it's kind of an, an and you know and also, I think, if I'm being morbid and, and utterly truthful, I think being a, you know, I've, I've recently stopped smoking, but being a 43-year-old, 19-stone smoker, I'm not sure how long I had to write this fucking thing. Actual deadline. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, you, you, you mentioned your parents and, and the age you are now. You were orphaned at 39. Yeah. Um, which, you know, you, which you say rather beautifully in the book is, you know, it's, it's too old and too, too young at, at the same time. Do you think you could have written the book if your parents were still alive? Uh, I could have written it if my dad was still alive. I think my mum would have been so utterly ashamed that I had written a book about something that was so personal to her. She, yeah. About because you'd written about her or because you'd written about yourself? Because I'd written about her alcoholism, you know, and it was something that was never mentioned. And I think that's part of the reason <clears throat> why, you know, it, uh, 
she died, you know, because it was never spoken about and it was something that we all knew and and never acknowledged and and you know that's that's why. But you yourself started drinking early, and you drank you drank with your parents. And I grew up in a, a, an atmosphere where lo loads of people were drinking all the time. And I didn't drink with my, my my parents, but there were very often drunk people around. And I think it makes it very hard to learn what what what's right and what's wrong, what's what's appropriate. Yeah. And you didn't seem to have any <laughs> sense of anything being appropriate at all. I mean, no. it's, it's all out there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's only. You know, I think watching watching it, and I could only, I mean, I could only watch it up until, when I say watching it, I mean watching my mum kind of drinking. You know, I could only, I handled it until I was 18, and then I essentially escaped and exiled her for, for 10 years, you know, which I, I just, you know, I don't think I regret it because it's what I had to do, but, you know, there's only so much slurred phone conversations you can take before you think, well, what, you know, there's nothing I can do to help you. You think that that might drive you, though, to go the other way and to be kind of not, not drinking, but in fact, what you were doing was in Israel, drinking 95% proof vodka. Yeah. yeah, I think at that point, I didn't realise or didn't acknowledge that there was any connection between what my mum did and what, what I was doing, you know. I thought that we were separate entities. But I think it's... You know, it's only later when you realise, oh, right, well, you know, it's not just my mum, but it's my sister and, and two of my brothers it also killed. And, you know, you, I think I'm in a place now, having a child, where I've seen so much of it that I'm really aware that I wouldn't want him to see any of it, really. And so there's, I think, I think there's a massive difference between someone who has a, has a couple of beers and enjoys a piss-up every now and again and, and someone who will drink eight special brew before 10am and never get dressed and sit in a chair with a big V-shaped pillow. And that's, you know... And the time... My husband's never washed my hair. No. <laughs> the time that you took uh, to think about that was the four years that you stopped, that you stopped drinking. Yeah. What, what did that feel like, that time? Did you feel like... It was awful. Oh, right. <laughs> it was, you know, prime drinking years, being 21. And, uh, yeah, I think I came back from Israel because I kind of ran off to Israel when I was 18 or 19 with some horrible burgeoning you know chemical issue and i came back with a horrible burgeoning alcohol issue after we used to drink a thing called 95 and i used to think it was a really smart kind of name for alcohol but it was in fact called that because it was 95 percent alcohol and it was that stuff that you i don't know if anyone's ever spilt terps or white spirit on your hands where it doesn't go in you can't rub it off that's what it was like when you drank it. You didn't swallow, it just kind of went... <laughs> it just went straight, <laughs> straight into your mind. Uh, so, yeah, I came back and, you know, decided that I, that was that for me and kind of took four years off drinking. Um, and and you, we talked a little bit about Israel, but let's talk more about it, because you chose to go to a place that was not exactly free of conflict in order to work out your personal issues. You were 200 metres from the border from, with Lebanon. Yeah, yeah. Um, I liked it, you know... I enjoyed, it was very regimented in its format and, you know, you got up at half five and you work from 6am till one in the afternoon, um, six days a week and that was you and they gave you, you know, free beer and cigarettes and shoes and clothes and all you had to do was, was work and, um, and try and sleep with Swedish girls and, you know, it was great. And you had limited success at that. Yeah, you know. Some success. Yeah, yeah. 
The sum, sum of that success is in the book. I felt that there was more success on the edges, but you didn't want to boast, which I thought was very noble. <laughs> uh, uh, no, I mean, there really wasn't. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> oh. No, I would have boasted. Okay. So you, you, got, you, you went to Azure, you came back, you saw that, that you changed, but the things hadn't changed. Yeah, no, not at all. I mean, I think it's that thing that a lot of people have where you think, oh, I've grown, I've grown so much, and I'll get back and everyone else will have grown too. And, you know, we can sit around and listen to the violent femmes, uh, you know, and uh, it, didn't, it wasn't like that, you know, it was exactly the same. It was as if I just walked out and just walked straight back the next day. And, yeah. The only thing that changed is my hair had grown longer. And was blonder as well. So blonde, yeah. yeah. The picture's at the back of the book. Yeah, I used, weirdly, the, a lot of the guys started using this thing called sunning. So we just spray sunning uh, before, you know, picking kiwi fruits for six hours. Um, so you did go back to Azure and then you went back to the UK um, and that is when you then started working, yeah. working as a waiter yeah. at Chiquitos, which you do, you're careful to say when you started working there was the best Mexican food in London. Yeah, I, I always thought it was fantastic because they made all their sauces fresh every day in store uh, and then they got taken over by like a massive conglomerate and then everything was just shipped in like, like frozen and just heated up. Where were you living at that time? Uh, I lived first in a place called Golders Green, and then I just essentially kind of went around the northwest. <laughs> I just moved around and Kilburn and, and Kentish Town. Okay. Um, and at that point, no contact with your family? No, there'd be talk. phone calls and stuff, and, and that was that. I mean, that, as soon as I, literally as soon as I heard my mum's voice, I'd be cross and I'd be mad at the fact I was cross at her. Then I'd speak to my dad and I'd be cross at him because he will allow it to happen, but I, you know, I knew that he had no, no say-so in it at all, you know. But there was, uh, I think when I was like 27, I don't, I don't talk about this in the book, this would be, if I ever do another one, but I was like 28 and I thought, let's, let's wave the white flag and let's get my folks up and to spend Christmas together with, in my now nice house in Kentish Town with, with Simon Pegg and his family and my mate Michael and his lovely family and, and I got them up and stuff, and I actually said to my mum, now listen, please, you know, don't, just, you know. I felt bad doing it, because it's like, well, who am I to say to my mum, please don't show me up? Uh, and she was like, yeah, yeah, it will be fine. And then that was Christmas Eve, and then cut to Boxing Day at 7am. I'm essentially screaming at them both to fuck off out of my house. And, and again, that was like the last time I saw them for another yeah. <laughs> four years. And I did, I did a really twatty thing where I ran off to Paris to write and drink whiskey. Uh, you know, which in hindsight is kind of hypocritical. Yeah, just a bit. But, um, <laughs> but hey, the chaos... Hey, that sorry, you, the, can you shut your legs a bit? Sorry, is it, is it exciting? Uh, yeah, a little, I'm not going to say it isn't. <laughs> also, I didn't notice until tonight that we had mirrored tables here, which is uh, troubling and exciting in equal measure, uh, depending on where you're sitting. But um, anyway, um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, so the, the stability that comes into your life is a stability that comes through friendship and it comes through meeting Simon. Yeah. Tell us about that moment. Uh, just, you know, I, I think I was frightened about meeting him because I fancied his girlfriend slightly at the time. Um, she was lovely and Scottish and clever and, and funny and, and sharp. And then I found out she was going out with this stand-up comic and I thought, oh, balls, you know. And one night I had a big party at the flat I was living in and, and she came along with him. 
And, but he had a very different style back then. He, he wore a lot of tweed. Uh, he, you know, a lot, of, lot of, yeah, a lot of gap, a lot of gap stuff. Um, green cords with red DM shoes, that kind of thing. Long hair, short hair? No, always short hair. He looked a bit like Vic from The Young Ones. Uh, and so, yeah, he turned up and stuff and I avoided him for ages. And then, you know, Charlotte said, why don't you come and meet him? And I had to meet him and then just, just, uh, you know, we stood about on the balcony and it was as if no one else was alive and we just did impressions to one another. Uh, and we did adverts, you know, when you like do an advert to each other and laugh and then... No. Well, like, like you do the, like, <clears throat> you do like body form, you know what I mean? So you say, whoa, body form! And then someone else would do it and, you know, you'd... And then like we'd do, we, uh, we'd, I'd like do an impression of David Coleman. <laughs> And he'd like love it, and then he'd do an impression. It, you know, it was that, that's how it started. And that was how long ago? Uh, Twenty-two years. Okay. And I mean, what's interesting is is that that some of the people who are still around then are still a part of your life. You seem to be very good at keeping people. I think having lost so many people, you've you've kept tight hold yeah. of him. But the relationship that brought you together, the girlfriend, she's she's gone. Yes, she has gone. Sadly. Yeah. Well, not sadly, because we got you know we. Lost her and I got him, so. Um, and when did, you, when did you start living together and when did you start working together? We started living together pretty much straight away. Uh, we shared a house for ages, for ages and ages. And, uh, and we didn't, I mean, we started working together when we did, space was the first thing, but you know, there were lots of things where I'd do characters just to make him laugh. And, and you know, one of these characters became, became Mike Watt and I never wanted to act, and he, you know, he and Jessica suggested one day, why don't you come and do Mike Watt in this show? We've had commission called Spaced, and so, you know, being a kind of, a, a kind of non-believing stoner, I just went, yeah, all right. You know, never imagined that I'd have to then uh, pretend to act or know how to act, you know. Uh, so, yeah, that was the first time. That was the kind of the first thing we did. But it wasn't a smooth trajectory, and I think that's one of the really interesting things about the book is that as much as you're honest about everybody else's feelings, and I think this is really important in, in, in memoir, you talk about other people's problems, you also talk about your own, and in your relationship with Simon, there is a massive splinter of jealousy, isn't there, at the uh, beginning? Yeah. Because you're still working as, as a waiter, and here he is being this, you know, stand-up yeah. stand guy, and you just, you, you know, you want some of what he's got. Absolutely, yeah. I think, I mean, it really affected us for a year, you know, and I think there was a, a point somewhere in that year where we thought, I mean, I think, I think we both secretly thought, oh, this could be it, you know. Uh, because it was like, I think when your job is comedy and when you're as good at it as he was as a stand-up and is now, when he, you make it look easy, you kind of think, well, why the fuck haven't I got that, you know? And I think that affected me for a long time. And I was, um, you know, being a, being a waiter and never having that much money, you know, you live very much hand-to-mouth, you never save anything. So when, you know, him and a bunch of the guys that he now hangs out with and they're off, you know, into town, <laughs> into town for the night, <laughs> into London for the night, you know, and you, ain't got, you haven't got anything, you know, there's only so many times you'll say, oh, well, yeah, go on, let me 20 quid, you know. And so it got to a point where I'd stay in a lot and they'd go out and I'd kind of feel pissy about it. And I think it just, I think we just, one, one night we, we went out clubbing in Covent Garden and we couldn't get a taxi. It was me and him. We left a few bunch of people in the club and 
uh, we couldn't get a taxi, so we decided to walk back to Kentish Town. And it was a really beautiful morning, uh, very grey, and, you know, it was that kind of thing where you feel like there's no one else uh, around. And from the walk from Covent Garden back to our house in Kentish Town, we hashed the whole thing out. And by the time we got home, it was gone, and it, it, never, it never came back. It does seem to me like that was the first time in your life where you'd actually resolved a problem in a relationship <laughs> rather than leaving it or somebody yeah, dying. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. yeah. And that, in fact, is kind of, I think, one of the best things that that friendship has given you, isn't it? That you can be, that you can be good at something, not just your work, but actually the, As the a, relationship. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yes, I agree. <laughs> I feel like I should be paying you yeah, £80 yeah. Pounds an hour for this. <laughs> there will be a bill. <laughs> I'll take questions, <laughs> Sylvia. Did you just say Ola? Yeah. Oh, I see, sorry. Yeah. Oh, oh. Uh, this is about the football player? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay, there's... There's, there's a bit in the book where I went out with this girl for, for a while, you know, she was, I was a shallow idiot back then and a waiter and she was very beautiful and I tried to make it work and I couldn't and I knew that she didn't really like me but I made her laugh so, you know, she, she kind of liked me a bit and, and one, one night, post-coitally, we lay there in, in the dark and she said to me, I really like you but I wish you looked more like David Beckham. And it was at that point when I realised that it was done and I essentially got up and, and walked out only to realise that it was my own house that I'd walked out of. Uh, I'll take another question. Oh, hang on. Well, I didn't oh, know sorry, was, did no you, answer. was there a supplementary? Sorry. sorry. The question is, it's very brutal to read and it's very... Um, it must be very brutal for you. What do you think you learned from that experience? What do you think you learned from that experience, if anything? Uh, I guess... Not to walk out of your own house? Yeah, I would have, yeah. What have I, I don't know, I just think it was... This is me, actually, I should go. Um, it was just one of those things, you, I just, you know, I think I knew that going into a string of relationships with very beautiful women that it was going to hurt, and I kind of didn't care. Um, so I guess, you know, aim for the heart, not for the tits. Hola. They are quite, they are quite close. Claire. <laughs> when did you first oh. know you were funny? <laughs> uh, oh, I, um, I used to make my grand laugh a lot. Uh, like five or six. She was, very, she was a very rough woman, very big rough hands. So she'd always, to kind of show how much she liked you, she'd kind of throw you about and grab you by the neck and that. Uh, <laughs> which I guess should have put me off, but it didn't. I liked it. If, if this book, um, has, it been, has it been optioned yet? Will it be oh, I don't, I don't know. Okay. If it, if, it, if it was, would you be involved anyway in the screenplay or would there perhaps be a, a cameo or, or any, <laughs> any of that? Or would you, how would it feel casting yourself? Oh, I don't know. I mean, it would have to, I mean, uh, I think the guy that did Magic Mike said he'd do it. Channing Tatum said he'd do it. So, I don't know. Maybe it's too, too close to, to me. Uh, I don't know, I mean, I'd probably want to write the screenplay, but I'd, I'm not sure if I'd want to do... Who did private parts? He starred in his own... Yeah. Howard... Howard Stern. Stern. Oh, hola. Uh, yeah, Howard Stern. <laughs> I don't think I'd want to do that. 
you know, I think it's really indulgent. Um, I think that seems like... Oh, we've got one more question, one more question. Yes, go, yeah. Okay, thank you. Right. Is any moment when you delve about and which you say to yourself and a part of Adelaide, actually? Right there. So, for those who didn't hear the question, is that a Mexican woman apologising about chiquitos <laughs> um, and and saying saying that you're saying that you're very brave? Um, but was there ever a moment when you, where you doubted your where you doubted that you that you could or that you should? Yeah. Well, I mean, yes. I mean, I'm not a heartless oaf, you know. I mean, I think there were when your ex-wife rings you up crying to say, why does our son need to know that you used to piss yourself? You know, obviously, that you think, oh, am I doing, you know, what am I doing this for? And I think once you add up why you're doing it and you take away <laughs> who you're going to hurt, uh, if that's still a plus sign, you think, yeah, OK. You know, I mean, I know I'm not a... You know, I, I, I didn't want to disrespect anyone. And, and in the writing of this book, I think if I weren't to be honest or... or or tell the worst parts of what happened. I think it would not only be a dishonest, but be dishonourable to those people who who had died in my in my life. You know, to to just ignore them and, and and forget what they did. You know, even though it was awful at points. If it wasn't for any of it, you know, I wouldn't be uh, here speaking Spanish and standing in fucking cheese boards. <laughs> Uh, the, book, the book is More Truth Than Half Truths. It is incredible. Um, thank you so much for being here and sharing your story thank tonight. You. Nick Boss, thank, thank you. you. Thanks for We're back after the interval with Diana Addo. Thank you.